I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 10. I'm going to read the first 12 verses. just want to thank the worship team for leading us, but also for the congregation as choir. It's wonderful as we sing God's praises. Now we turn to God's Word, Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. I'm reading in the English Standard Version. But this is the very Word of God. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again, and again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up and in order in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Would you pray with me now? Almighty God, as we have read even your word and these weighty words... We thank you that your word still abides in truth. And I pray, Lord, that we would be faithful hearers and doers of your word. Lord, we thank you that your word has gone out amongst us even this morning through the Sunday school classes, both for the adults and for the children, as we have sung according to your word, as we have confessed our sins according to your word. We pray, Lord, that your word would go forth and bear fruit among us today. Lord, we thank you for the ministry of this church. We thank you for the advance of the gospel in and through this church. Lord, make us a testifying, witnessing people that we would testify to your word, even the truth of the gospel, the good news. Lord, we thank you that your word is going forth in other churches. We thank you For Fairview Baptist Church, Pastor Tim Stevens, as they are preaching the gospel this morning, we pray for the King and His Kingdom Conference coming up in October. We pray that that would be a great sounding forth of the gospel, even of the risen Christ, the true King. Lord, we thank you for Josh Carey and his ministry at Grace Cochran Church. We pray that your hand would be upon that church even this morning. And even as some of the Guys from Grace Cochran and people, guys from this church and other churches were at the men's breakfast yesterday. Lord, we pray that there would be a real awakening of godly men seeking your face, 
uh, disregarding all of the calls of toxic masculinity and those that would seek you to honor you and to live like Christ, to be both fierce and meek in equal measure. Lord, help them to honor you in the fear of the Lord. Lord, we do pray for this country. We ask that you would grant mercy to the nation of Canada as we see so many things that trouble us, so many things that are unrighteous and ungodly and wicked. But we do pray, Lord, that hearts that have been stoned would be melted, melted by your Holy Spirit, and that we would see not just in this church, but in all the gospel-preaching churches across this land, we would see a massive influx of people calling out and saying, what must I do to be saved? So Lord, we pray that you would act and do that in our generation, and that you would prepare us, that we would be faithful witnesses, testifying to the new covenant that is in Jesus Christ. Oh Lord, make us a holy people. Guide us. We pray you would bless our marriages, even as we're going to learn about Jesus' view on marriage. Help us to love our spouses, to recognize even the picture of Christ in his own church that is represented there. Oh Lord, give us faith to believe in you. Give us forgiving mercies to forgive others, even as you have forgiven us. Oh Lord, I pray that you would cause us to be a changed people, even changed by your word, your word and your spirit applied to us right now. Do this in this event now, in this moment. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> well, it's, we're near the end of September, and that means that wedding season has finally slowed down. Uh, there have been a lot of weddings that have occurred in this church this summer, right? Didn't you, weren't all of your weekends taken up all summer with weddings? Uh, it's wonderful to have so many weddings in this church. May their tribe increase. Uh, we want to see more of those. Uh, and so I've, I've done a number of weddings of late, uh, and the Anglican Book of Common Prayer liturgy, which is the classic liturgy in the West, it's what all the movies use, uh, we are told that, that marriage, and I refuse to do the Princess Bride voice, and if you laugh, then you've seen the movie, and it maybe dates you a little bit, but anyways, marriage is not by any to be enterprised, nor taken in hand, unadvisedly, lightly, or wantonly, to satisfy men's carnal lusts and appetites like brute beasts that have no understanding, but reverently, discreetly, advisedly, soberly, and in the fear of God, duly considering the causes for which matrimony was ordained. End quote. That's from the Book of Common Prayer. Now, all of that and more is said up front at the start of a wedding ceremony. It's, it's repeated over and over in the wedding season. It's all about, you know, you're not entering into this, into this marriage in a flippant manner. 
But the reason why that has to be said on the front end is the same reason that all year round, there's another side of the wedding season that's occurring. And it's the divorce season. It's not, it's not as pleasant. It's, but it is, it's going on year round. How can the promise of a wedding day turn to be the tragedy of the divorce court day? How is that possible? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I've done a lot of premarital counseling. I'm still doing some premarital counseling right now. When everybody's in premarital counseling, it's, it's all, you know, rainbows and butterflies. It's all awesome. There's not, there is, you know... Uh, one pastor said, you know, when, when couples come to you to, for premarital counseling, they're bulletproof. Like, they're, you know, they, they think it, there's not going to be any troubles at all. And yet ask a child of a broken home, as they're called, and they will tell you about the aftermath of divorce. And I can think of many of you here with that experience. In a fallen world, there is a, a depth to this issue that we can't see through at first glance. And so we have to look deeper. And Jesus dealt with the issue, and he offered a biblical way forward for thinking about this topic of divorce and remarriage. And it's really a discussion of marriage. And so we're going to look at this section in Mark chapter 10. We're going to see what Jesus said in this episode, and we'll, we'll feel the weight of his words, as you felt them as we read them, but we'll feel the weight of those words, and then we're going to scan the rest of the New Testament and see what it says, and so we get a clear biblical picture. Then we're going to make some applications. I'll offer some wisdom, even for the married and for the unmarried. Hopefully there's some wisdom there. But weddings and divorces are in view. So let's make sure when we start... We have to see the beauty and goodness of marriage and not let ourselves be jaded and cynical about marriage. The Puritan John Trapp, referring to the creation of Eve and the wedding feast, said, A feast never more fitting than at the recovery of the lost rib. The lost rib. You know, do you know how Eve was created? Okay, if you don't, you've got to go back and read Genesis Luther called his wife Katie his rib. Uh, that's, I mean, maybe, maybe, you, maybe your wife, you don't want to be called your husband's rib. But we have to have in mind at the very beginning of creation, what was the intention of marriage when we get then to the first question before us this morning, which is, is divorce lawful? Is divorce lawful? lawful. Now, so that first question, that's what we're going to look at. We're, we're faced with this first question in this passage, and it is a question that every person asked when they've already decided a course of action. <laughs> or at least that's what I found. Often people ask that question, is divorce lawful? But they've already decided, I want to get a divorce. And then they ask, the question, first of all, is not chiefly about whether divorce is okay or not. The question is a testing question in most cases. 
in the case of the Pharisees right here, they weren't asking Jesus' view out of sincerity. They were testing him. It says they were testing him. That, that was what they were trying to do. They were, they were going to test him. Is it, is it lawful for a man to, to, to divorce his wife? They wanted to test him by that. Most of the time, I've found people will come to me or come to any pastor and they'll, they'll ask, is divorce lawful? They've already decided that they want a divorce and they're testing the pastor about whether or not he's going to endorse their decision or not. I mean, that's almost, not always, but almost always the case. Now, this is very important when we look at the question of divorce because in most cases, there are exceptions, but in most cases, People want a divorce and they ask whether it's legal, lawful, and righteous after they've decided they want one. Now, what were the Pharisees testing Jesus about? Now, they weren't, they weren't, they weren't all thinking about getting divorced themselves. That, they, that's not what was on their mind. So what were they doing? It's interesting. So they're testing Jesus in a different way. I think that the Pharisees wanted to have their interpretation supported by Jesus. That's what they were looking for. And so th- that's, what, that's what they're going with. They wanted to have Jesus see that the Pharisees were the big interpreters, that they were the top interpreters, and they wanted Jesus to be the secondary inter- interpreter that supported the Pharisees. It's like politicians. You know, politicians get endorsements, right? They get endorsements so they can get a celebrity or a rich man to support them. And if they get that guy to support them, they feel elevated. So it's the same idea. Now, what's ironic, and Jesus almost always, when he's dealing with these Pharisees, these religious leaders, these legalists, when he's dealing with them, almost always, it's fascinating, when he deals with them, he always brings in the irony. He always brings in irony because Jesus, ironically, points them back to their Pharisee interpretation, which was based on the law of Moses. So he says there, verse 3, he answered them, what did Moses command you? So, he, so that, they're like, yeah, this is right in our wheelhouse. We're all about Moses. We want to know what Moses said. And, and Jesus is saying, yeah, let's go there. That's where you want to go? Let's go there. Let's, let's talk about Moses. And they said, verse 4, This is the Pharisees. They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Now, the word divorce in this passage is from the Greek word apostasio, which is to say a separation, like our English word apostasy. So it's interesting. Is this that similarity of that word? The phrase, send her away, is the Greek word apoluo, which is the idea of dismissing or sending away, as when Jesus sent away the crowds, uh, you know, after his teaching. Because it isn't necessarily negative, it's just talking about the action of sending or dismissing someone. Now, the quotation that these Pharisees are referring to is from Deuteronomy chapter 24 and verse 1, and it says this, Deuteronomy 24, 1, If a man marries a woman, but she becomes displeasing to him because he finds some indecency in her, he may write her a certificate of divorce, hand it to her, and send her away from his house. So there's this provision 
for a divorce, whether it was to protect the woman who may be mistreated or to protect the integrity of the marriage from sexual immorality, this was an exception or a permission laid out in the law of Moses. Now, as we see, before you go jumping to the divorce question, just remember what the Pharisees are doing. They are testing Jesus. Will Jesus support their view of Scripture? Will Jesus hold Moses as being superior to Jesus? And Jesus pointed them back to Moses with the exception or the, this permission clause. But then Jesus explained in verse 5, he said, he said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. So Jesus is not letting these guys off the hook with their testing because they are being hard-hearted. And the very question of divorce was was provided for by God because the Israelites were hard-hearted. So we have to establish that. Now in the Old Testament, this hard-heartedness was illustrated by how God dealt with the nation of Israel. So the whole Testament has some of this dynamic going on. So for example, in Jeremiah chapter 3 and verse 8, it says this, If a man divorces his wife, and she goes from him and becomes another man's wife, will he return to her? Would not that, the land, would not that land be greatly polluted? You have played the whore with many lovers, and would you return to me, declares the Lord? He's referring to the nation of Israel and how they've acted like an unfaithful wife. And he's he's talking in terms of, no, no, if you're going to act like that, then you would be put away. Isaiah chapter 50 and verse 1, thus says the Lord, Where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Of which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Behold, for your iniquities you were sold, and for your transgressions, your transgressions, your mother was sent away. In other words, it was Israel's apostasy, not God's fault for the break in the relationship. And as many of you have been studying, if you've been on our men's and women's studies in the last year, in the book of Hosea, where Hosea marries Gomer the harlot. God warns Israel of his grounds for divorce. He's he's laying out the grounds for divorce. He's, He's making that argument prophetically. He sends Hosea the prophet, and Hosea issues these warnings. He's saying, yeah, there's grounds here. Grounds that are essentially the warnings of divorce towards Israel because of their apostasy. Now, God is very long-suffering and patient, and He's desirous to be forgiving and to, to bring back the wanderer. But it's the same then when we apply here that practically for individuals, whether it was a mercy to the wife who committed sexual immorality that she could be divorced rather than forced to live and be tortured or injured by her husband, he could put her away. Or it was a mercy to the husband that he could preserve the integrity of his marriage after his wife's sexual immorality. Whatever the scenario, something else had happened. 
Something had happened, for example, with the people of Israel. The people of Israel had become hard-hearted. They didn't want to forgive anymore. They didn't want to let love cover a multitude of sins in their marriages. They didn't want to bear patiently with the weak in their marriages. They didn't want to show mercy in their marriage. They didn't want to extend grace. They were hard-hearted. Terry Stauffer used to be on staff here. He's a great friend of many of us, pastors up at Sherwood Park. Terry used to talk about uh, marriage counseling as a pastor. And, and he would talk about couples that would come in and all they could do was rehearse all of the bad stuff. All of the bad stuff that they had not forgiven. All the bad stuff that the other person had done to them. And Terry called it looking with the jaundiced eye. He said they're always looking at everything with the jaundiced eye. They can't see. Do you see all the good stuff? Do you see all the grace? Do you see all the blessings? Do you see all the mercy? Nope, they don't see that anymore. They got the jaundiced eye, and it only sees all the bad. And that's, that's what Israel had. So the exception or permission was not needed because the Israelites were acting righteously, but because they were self-righteous, because they were stubborn, because they were stone-hearted. So the Pharisees wanted to go to Moses, so that Jesus goes right there. Jesus goes back to Moses again. Jesus knows the Bible better than anyone. So he pits Moses against Moses. Or actually, it's not Moses against Moses. He's just saying he's going to show, actually, let's interpret all of Moses properly. He shows the command of Moses compared to the command that was a concession of Moses. And the command was this. You see it in verse 6 in Mark 10. But from the beginning of creation. It's an interesting way of phrasing it in Jesus' view. You can take it forever you want, but it's, it's saying that the creation of male and female is from the beginning of creation. I'll leave that with you just to think about. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Oh, I thought that was just Old Testament stuff. No, this is Jesus teaching. This is Jesus quoting from the Bible. God made them male and female. Look at verse 7. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. These words are written by whom? It's a question of the authorship of Genesis. These are the narrative of Moses about creation. What God revealed to Moses about creation. And God gave it to him in Genesis 1 and 2. And that's, that's what Jesus is directly quoting from. Now, if you don't wish to take the words of Genesis 1 and 2 seriously and authoritatively, then you have to ask yourself why Jesus did so. Jesus did. And to be even clearer, if saying that human beings were made by God as binary sexes Male and female. If you say that in today's public square and it is called bigotry, then we have to say that Jesus is a bigot. Because Jesus affirms binary sexes, male and female. 
So don't think somehow, well, you're going to be more compassionate than Jesus. Because you aren't. You're just being phony. No. Jesus affirms the truth here. Jesus affirmed that marriage was between a man and his wife. He affirmed binary sexes only, and he affirmed that the union of husband and wife is a one flesh union. It's a spiritual dynamic. It is something that God does when he joins people together in marriage. Now, Jesus was, of course, asserting God's creation design, his master plan for monogamous marriage until death do them part, as we say in the vows. So Jesus is stressing to you, he's stressing it to me, that marriage matters. Marriage matters, and it is for life. That's the design. That's the design. But, but we're, we'll, all of us, you know, our temptation is to test Jesus, just like, just like the Pharisees did. We, we, we're tempted to test him. We'll test him by wondering, what can we get away with, Jesus? What can we get away with? Can we get away with divorce for any reason? Can we separate? Can we functionally separate? Can we live under the same roof but act like we're divorced? Is it lawful? You think, oh, that sounds strange. Believe me, myself, the pastors here, we've heard them all. We've heard of all these scenarios of people trying, trying to manipulate the situation to try to, to, to make it seem lawful, but they basically want it their own way. When we do this kind of testing of God, we're saying that we are innocent in our desire for divorce until proven guilty. It's like, oh yeah, I, I'm innocent. I want a divorce. Try to, try to prove it to me that I can't get one. And that's often, so often, the case. That's, that's it's, it's so, so frequent, sadly, even in the church. We want our way. We want our own way, even if the church disagrees, and we will not stop until we get what we want. And even as I say these words, I think of people. I think of people. It breaks my heart to think of the people who, who took that path, who said, I want what I want, and I don't care what the church, I don't care what the Bible says, I don't care what God says. I'm going to worship God in my own way. This is the disposition of the hard heart. And it is far worse than merely an unbiblical divorce. It can be a symptom of a lost, deceived soul. That is it's terrifying when you see people who want sin and they don't care what you say. That is dangerous. Now, there's a caveat here. I'm talking about divorce. And I'm trying to let this passage speak. And maybe you've been sorely traumatized by going through a divorce, a spouse divorcing you, or, or uh, so commonly, maybe your parents were divorced. But please, please don't, don't test Jesus then by drawing a conclusion before you've heard his word you may actually be surprised with what he says. And that's actually what we're going to discover. 
Now, we've seen then, is divorce lawful? This question, this testing question in this passage. But secondly, we want to see what is Jesus' view of divorce. Now, in this passage, we've, we see that Jesus affirmed what Moses said about marriage in Genesis 1 and 2, and he says further. Look at verse 10. In the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. So, the, I mean, the disciples, just like you, you're like, okay, G- Jesus, I, I want, get, let's fill this out some more. I want, I want to hear more. Verse 11, he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. That would, this would appear from this passage, following the Genesis teaching, that the ideal which Jesus desires is that, is that marriage is for life. And it would then be the case that divorce and remarriage, for any reason, causes an act of adultery to be committed against their divorced spouse. So, that's what it appears from this. And so then this this resonates with even what the Bible teaches, Malachi 2.16. New American Standard uh, Version has it uh, this way. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of armies. So be careful about your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. He hates divorce. The Israelites had a hard heart. So, for he'd said of them in that context, he said, the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your marriage companion and your wife by covenant. You see, in that context, God was saying to the Jews that he was against them because they dealt treacherously with their wives, and yet they claimed to be pious. They claimed to be righteous. They claimed to be faithful. It wasn't that he hated divorce in the abstract. He hated the treachery. He hated the betrayal of the covenant. He hated the disregard for God who was the witness. Do you remember when, I mean, you, you, you know, well, I'll back this up. I'll just say, I'll say you know, people ask me when they're going to get married. They'll, they'll ask me this. They'll say, why do we need a ceremony? Right? It's expensive. Like, why bother doing all the stuff? You know, shouldn't we just run away? you know, Vegas, marriage, chapel, whatever. Why do you need a ceremony? You know, let's keep it as short as possible with as few as possible. But the point of the ceremony is not just the pageantry of it all. Although I actually think there's, there's actually a, an important part of that. It's not just the formal vows which the bride and groom make to each other. Although that's, that's critical. But those vows are witnessed. When you go to a wedding, all the congregation, they are the witnesses of this marriage covenant. They're the witnesses. And it is witnessed by the gathered guests, and it is witnessed by God. You're getting married before God. With God as my witness. So we see Jesus' emphasis then. Jesus' view, it is marriage for life as a witnessed covenant. It's a witnessed covenant. 
Now, in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 31, the parallel account, we are also shown explicitly that Jesus holds this exception, which he has still, nevertheless, not rescinded in Mark 10. Matthew 5, 31 says this, It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So Jesus has the very same emphasis, very clear from both Mark 10 and Matthew 5, It is the emphasis on the permanence of marriage. However, there is the exception, an accepted biblical ground of sexual immorality. So there is a biblical exception. It's a legitimate biblical ground for divorce. Jesus affirms that there then is the possibility, not the necessity, by the way, but the possibility of divorce on the grounds of sexual immorality. This means that it is possible, in Jesus' view, that a person could have a biblically justifiable divorce and get remarried without sin in those decisions. See, I've I've seen people who have biblical grounds for divorce, who pursue that action, who get remarried, and they they still feel kind of half guilty through it all, even though they have been able to act righteously. Jesus has this view that there are exceptions. Very important to see. But his overarching view is the permanence of marriage that has been a covenant witnessed by God. That's overwhelmingly the emphasis. But there is, a, there is an exception that he says. You know, sometimes... It's all that can keep a marriage going. It's, it's, it's just the fact that God has witnessed this marriage. And, 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 and that other people have witnessed this covenant too. When a husband and wife are feuding with each other, sometimes the only thing keeping them going is just the fact that other people are watching. Other people are watching them. And there's, there's something legit about that. Many marriages that stop navel-gazing, stop fixating on their own problems, when they see that their covenant has God as their testifier, then they start seeing that there's more going on in their marriage than just their problems between each other. So you have to, after you lift your eyes up and see God testifying, God is witness. So the emphasis is permanence, the permission is an exception. The emphasis is permanence. The permission is an exception. This is Jesus' view of divorce and remarriage. He affirms this because it's a creation ordinance. It is ordained by God before the fall of man, even before sin. Yet because of sin and the hardness of people's hearts, God has permitted mercies. Now at this point, I need to be clear I think that Jesus teaches in the Gospels 
that marriage is for life till death do us part. It is a covenant. That is the design. However, we see that Jesus allows for divorce, as Moses did, on the grounds of sexual immorality. Why is this? It's all because of the creation ordinance. All because the two becoming one flesh. Now, I believe that Jesus has another exception. It's another exception, and you're thinking, well, right? Uh, are you right about that, Clint? You're already one. Jesus actually has another exception articulated through his apostle Paul. You see, actually, when Paul is speaking, Jesus is inspiring him, actually, just to, just to make that point. People pit Jesus against Paul. No, it's Jesus, Jesus saying the same thing. It's Jesus. It is Jesus' apostle, Jesus inspiring his own apostle. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Paul taught the following in 1 Corinthians 7, picking up in verse 10. I know for some of you this might be heavy going. For others of you, this is like as serious as cancer. Like this is so relevant, so important. So I just urge you to press on with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 10, Paul says, To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. Okay? Right? Emphasis on permanence. Verse 11. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. So in this, Paul is making an allowance for a separation for a time, but not a divorce without proper grounds. Now, you might be surprised to know that pastorally, the pastors here at this church, we've actually counseled some couples that they may need to separate for a season when they are under great duress. But it's always with a view to kind of let the swelling go down for a minute so that then we can come back and work to reconcile and work in this marriage. But people, they don't have a biblical grounds for divorce, but they just they need, a, need space because there's been something traumatic that's happened. So Paul is making an allowance there, but it is not allowing divorce without proper grounds. Paul speaks of a different scenario. He says in verse 12, To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. This is such an important point. Because many people in the first century and today, they become Christian believers after they've gotten married. You're like, oh God, this can't be your plan. This is so hard. Why didn't, why didn't I become a Christian before I got married? No, no. I mean, and, and, you know, their spouse didn't sign on to being married to a Christian, right? That wasn't part of the deal. But also many new Christians can mistakenly think that because a, because a Christian shouldn't pursue marriage to a non-Christian, that then that Christian should ditch their non-Christian spouse. There's all kinds of crazy teaching like that in churches. This is not the case, and Paul is against that kind of thinking. Many people in this church 
are Christians who are married to non-Christians. Many of the non-Christians, you, you may be sitting here in the pew even with us. Just want to welcome you. I'm so glad you're here. Uh, we're glad that you're here under the sound of the gospel. We want Christian spouses to love their non-Christian spouses well. If you aren't a Christian and you're married to a Christian here and you're concerned about your Christian spouse, you can still come and talk to me about it. It's a good and godly thing to do for Christian spouses to love their non-Christian spouses well. There's even this spiritual residual benefit for a non-Christian spouse by virtue of being married to a Christian. Verse 14, For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Now, does that mean... The unbelieving husband is saved? Does that mean the unbelieving wife is saved? Is it? Is that what it means? To be made holy in this way? No, it doesn't. You're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Not by having the right spouse. There is a spiritual residual benefit, though. A Christian wife doesn't magically make her husband a Christian just by being married to her. She's so awesome. She's so amazing. You're married to me. Oh, boom, you're in. That's all. I'm your savior. And it's the same. Christian parents don't magically make their children Christian. Paul says, otherwise, your, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. What he is saying is that just as a husband, as has this set-apart blessing on him by virtue of a Christian wife. So kids with a Christian parent get this set-apart blessing on them because of that godly influence in their lives. And that's the fact of it. Every kid that has even a single parent who is a Christian believer, they have been specially blessed by God to have that access to the gospel, to have that influence, to have all of it. They get all of that residual benefit, and they're set apart in that way. It is so special. But it is not. By the logic of the passage, it is not saying the children are saved, just as having a Christian wife does not make a husband saved. And you've got to have both. If you, go with the, if you go with the kids, then you've got to say, oh, it's Christian wife, therefore the husband, yeah, he's, he's saved, he's going to heaven. You've got to have them both. The logic of the passage demands it. They're set apart, the kids and the non-Christian spouse, but they're not saved. Which brings me then to the second major exception to the permanence of marriage. So one exception from Jesus' own lips sexual immorality, the second one from Jesus by his apostle Paul, verse 15. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister, that's the Christian, is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. And he says, verse 16, For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband, or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? You see, now, he has made this exception for separation, or we could call it abandonment. You know, if they, if they leave. 
when a spouse abandons the covenant and abandons their wife or their husband, they have given biblically legitimate grounds for divorce. Now, a friend of Crystal and mine, uh, she was married with a, with a large family, uh, professing Christian husband, church-going. Now, uh, the professing Christian husband cheated on her. She chose to forgive him and work on the marriage. He refused to stay in the marriage, and he ran off with the other woman, leaving behind his mother with five small children. I think it was five. I, keep, I lose track of how many kids these guys got. But anyways, five kids. She was abandoned. The church rallied around her, financially supported her, basically gave her a, a monthly salary in order to keep food on the table and clothes on their back because they were, they were abandoned. After much pleading with her sinning husband, she finally divorced him. And she did so, I believe, based on 1 Corinthians 7, she did so righteously and biblically and without sin. Now, that's one friend of ours that we've come to know. But I had a, I had a buddy, uh, uh, one of those guys, you know, he's an older, single guy. Uh, one of the guys we used to say he'd be a bachelor to the rapture. You, you might be a couple of those guys in here. I don't know. We're trying. We're working on you, bachelors to the rapture. We want you to get married before the rapture, if you will. Um, he's a bachelor to the rapture. Well, anyway, so he married her. He married her, and, and so he went from one day he had no kids to the next day being a father of five. Talk about shock. And I think they've had a few more together since. Like, I can't keep track of them. They got a massive family. But it was, I mean, just seeing their story, and they're both godly folks there in ministry in Ontario, seeing their life was such a beautiful picture of a godly woman who sought the design of marriage and yet who had legitimate grounds for divorce and pursued it in the fear of the Lord. Now, I have to add, in this exception of abandonment, I believe is included abuse. Why do I say that? Because when a spouse, usually a husband, abuses his wife, he is choosing to abandon their covenant. Straight up. He abandons it, not by sexual immorality, but by persecution, attack, physical, and mental harm. It's abuse. Abuse is abandonment, and I believe abuse is grounds for divorce. And, and this is where the first question comes into play, because we'll ask, what is abuse? And we have to ask the question sincerely. Well, if we look at any of our discomfort, any of our difficulty, any of our hurt, any of our injury to us, and claim it is grounds for divorce, oh, I'm, I'm being abused. We may be dealing falsely with the Lord and with the exceptions presented in His Word. So, basically, Jesus' view, I believe, is that marriage is essentially permanent, but there is exceptions according to sexual immorality 
and abandonment, which includes abuse. Now I want to bring us to some applications before we close. Jesus, Jesus, whom you love, whom you sing to, this Jesus, Jesus who is your Savior and Deliverer, Jesus who knows you better than you know yourself, this Jesus upholds the design that your marriage displays and he upholds it as being a permanent witness to himself, even to his own love for his own church in this life. If you love Jesus, if you say you love Jesus here, you must have a high view of marriage's indissolubility. It doesn't dissolve. The permanence of marriage must be your default setting, if you will. But secondly, by way of application, there are, I believe, two exceptions to the permanence of marriage in the New Testament. Two categories, we could say, sexual immorality and abandonment, which I say includes characteristic patterns of abuse. Most marriages that end in divorce, and I will say the statistics about, are about the same for Christians and non-Christians, so don't, don't sit smugly. Oh yeah, it's those people out there. The stats are about the same. Most marriages that end in divorce end because of unbiblical grounds. What do you say? Irreconcilable differences. You're not the person I married. We've grown apart. You're not going in the same direction as I am. And anyone who entertains the idea of divorce needs to see how dangerous it is to pursue something that God forbids just because life is hard. And, and marriage, is, marriage is two sinners. It's hard. It's two sinners, like all relationships. But thirdly, by way of application, and this is maybe something that churches have not talked about as much in the past, but it is clear that abuse is grounds for divorce. But when I say, you know, don't, don't read in, to when, when we say abuse is grounds for divorce, don't read in that marriage to a difficult man is grounds for divorce. It's not. Or marriage to a quarrelsome and fretful woman, Proverbs 21, 19. You know, and don't go, everybody go looking at your spouse. Like, that, that'd be bad at this point. That's, that's not going in the direction I want to go. But if everything is abuse, then nothing is abuse, right? If everything is abuse, nothing is abuse. Abuse needs to be taken seriously because it is serious and not the regular run-of-the-mill suffering of living with another sinner. Darby Strickland, if you're familiar with her, she's written a book called Is It Abuse? An excellent resource that many of the pastors and myself have have employed. She says this, quote, Abuse occurs in a marriage when one spouse pursues their own self-interest by seeking to control and dominate the, the other through a pattern of coercive, controlling, and punishing behaviors. Now, the elders here at Calvary Grace Church, we take allegations of abuse very seriously. At the same time, we're also aware 
that our, all of us, all of us in society, our resilience for being hurt by others is really, really, really low. And we, we all, all, everybody in society right now is looking for escapes from any type of little hurt or injury. We look for escapes with desperation. And we tend in society to use dramatic labels to give our escapes legitimacy. So Strickland says again, she says this, quote, As we assess marriages for abuse, we must be accurate and careful. Labeling something as abuse when it is not will do damage of a different kind. Not only to the people involved, but also to the women we encounter after them who truly are being abused. Much is at stake, so I urge you to take great care before labeling something as abuse. Now, in my ministry, and the other pastors can affirm this too, we have seen where, because now there's a category to describe pain, and, and is related to pain and some type of injury, some people are quick to use abuse as, as this kind of this weapon. And the problem is then there are people who are being abused in their marriages and they won't speak up and then they don't get believed because others are not willing to suffer and, in, and endure some hurts and some injuries from other sinners. So we want to be careful about this. But we deal with these things very seriously. Now, many of you here, I don't have to survey everybody, but, you know, if you're divorced here without biblical grounds and you're just here and you're going through this and like, oh, nope, 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 don't, don't have, didn't have biblical grounds. Or even if you've remarried after an unbiblical divorce. I just, I just want to tell you, there's hope. There's hope, hope now. You can repent. You can repent. It's, you can repent of your sin. It's just that simple. You can repent of the sin of an unbiblical divorce. You can repent of even the adultery of your remarriage that it constitutes. But once you're remarried with confession and repentance, once you're remarried, you need to work on that marriage. That marriage, the, the one you're in now. And you need to seek to honor God in that marriage, seeking to glorify Him in all aspects, loving your sp- spouse right then, there, and now. Work on that marriage. But do not think that you can enter into an unbiblical divorce and then you can repent later. Lots of people, that's what they think. And that way of thinking which is actually got at with Jesus confronting the Pharisees. That way of thinking, that is dangerous to your very soul. You ought never to seek sin and then presume on God's forgiveness. You can look at bad things, do bad things, knowing that you're going to repent later. Deadly. If that's the case, you're just a religious hypocrite. And maybe... You can't be assured that you're a true Christian. So to conclude, divorce 
is not what marriage is destined for. As another Puritan, Henry Smith, said, first a man must choose his love, and then he must love his choice. Right? I remember hearing the story of Alistair Begg talking to a guy on the golf course. Begg was quite a golfer, but he's talking to him on the golf course, and the guy's, guy just got married, and he said, said to Alistair Begg, he said, uh, I think I married the wrong woman. And Begg says, she's the right one now. <laughs> and she is. I think he also told him that if he broke his marriage vows, Begg would take a nine iron to his head. But that's, that was the funny part of the story. But anyway. You know, if we were to survey people in Bridgeland and through the city of Calgary, they don't think marriages are permanent. They assume they are impermanent. Oh, yeah, it's, it's going to work for a while so long as it's working. And then, oh, yeah, switch. They make their choices. They don't bother to love their choice. They just choose again and again on a whim. So if you're married here this morning, you need to work hard at your marriage. When you struggle to forgive, you remember that God is your witness. Has He forgiven you? Well, then extend His forgiveness to your spouse. And, in doing, and when you do that, you, you persevere in your marriage and you testify to your marriage that is being in the Lord. It is in the Lord. But if you're here and you're unmarried, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Get married in the Lord, 1 Corinthians 7. And trust that if God can forgive your sins, He can help you to forgive the sins of another sinner and so build this repenting, forgiving, and loving, and enduring marriage that's bound together till death do you part. For two sinners to love each other with Christ's forgiving love, that is a beautiful, supernatural thing. And as the liturgy says of marriage, it was ordained for the mutual society, help and comfort, that the one ought to have of the other, both in prosperity and adversity, into which holy estate these two persons present come now to be joined. That is what we want to see. That is what we want to pray for, that that love would increase in our marriages. That is my hope for us all this morning. Let's pray. Almighty God, we pray that we would honor you with all of our relationships and especially with the marriage relationship. Oh Lord, make us a holy people. Help us to fear you and to heed the emphasis that you have placed upon us, even with respect to marriage. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to stand as we return praise to the true and living God. Please stand. Just a reminder of the meal downstairs, the, the supper that actually should remind you even of the greater supper, even the marriage supper of the Lamb. We are told in Revelation 19, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb 
has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Will you receive that invitation to that marriage supper? I hope you will, and I hope you will testify to that true marriage. Go in peace. You're dismissed.